1: I thought somebody was pranking me first and said like, hey, my dad showed up as a new subscriber yesterday. So you
0: are at the point where you're still watching every
1: new subscriber. Oh yeah, Yeah. You, you dig in on everyone of like, okay, how'd they find out? Where do they live? Who is this person? Are they a friend? And I thought somebody was playing a prank on me and it was genuine. He stumbled across this and thought it was cool and bought it and right there was the moment I said, this is, there's something going on here.
0: That is Matt Meeker, Boutique treats and toys for dogs did turn out to be big. Bark, the company Meeker co-founded, seller of the subscription Bark Box, expects to do a quarter billion dollars in sales in 2018. Americans spend about $70 billion a year on their pets, and that's part of the reason why General Mills just announced that it plans to pay $8 billion for dog and cat food maker Blue Buffalo. And it's part of the reason why I went to see Matt Meeker at Bark's headquarters in New York City's Chinatown and learn how he saw this pet pampering megatrend coming six years ago. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of ways. Mainly, I want you to subscribe, and the internet can do the work for you. When you're pursuing a big idea, it's important to keep refining it and keep questioning your assumptions. That's one of the things I took away from Matt's story. Here's Matt Meeker. Uh,
1: we're surprised too, or <laughs> I was very surprised. So what we thought we would initially make was, um, for me, for my dog, Hugo, who is a Great Dane. He's very large in a city that doesn't have a lot of large dogs, and so they're not very well served or catered to. And I love this guy, and I wanted to make him very happy. and. Um, was looking for that outlet of how do I make him happy, where do I find these products coming up empty. So, invented the concept of Bark Box to help discover those things, um, help with the convenience of their coming to my door once a month. And really, we thought initially, this is just, it's fine, it's for a very small group of people, a hundred people subscribe to this. this a si- subscription box of
0: treats and yep. toys? Yep. Yeah? Yep. That was pretty much the idea. That was the idea. Was there another subscription box that was doing something else that you sort of looked to and said, ah,
1: oh, we should have one of those for dogs? Sure. Uh, the the initial, I think the first one that, that was out there in a big way was Birchbox mm-hmm. here in the city. And we're friendly with the founders there. And uh, that was inspirational. I also wanted to learn more about how commerce business worked. So I was very happy. I, I was in venture capital, happy with my job. Uh, didn't anticipate this at all, but as you mentioned, what we stumbled into was on a, uh, a huge market of crazy dog people. <laughs> much bigger. I thought I was the only one. Um, turns out not.
0: Ten years before you and the team founded Bark, you founded Meetup.
1: Uh, Co-founder. Yep, that's right. Ten years.
0: Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so did one help you with the other? I mean. What is all about connecting groups of people with similar interests? I imagine you probably had a bunch of connections, both kind of offline and online, email addresses, lists maybe. Were you able to leverage any of that to oh. get Bark off the ground?
1: No, none of that. Really? Uh, no, no. Entirely different products and experiences and businesses. Um, there's a common thread that they're both subscription-based. Uh-huh. Uh, which helped a lot. That's, I guess, how my mind is geared. And but you
0: didn't have like a crazy dog person meet up and hand the, out?
1: They, uh, Those are there. Um, <laughs> but we, meet up is very, uh, in a good way, very strict about that the groups belong to the groups. Mm. And so this isn't about there's a group and when we have the opportunity to sell you something or advance our own interests. It's, it's about supporting mm. the groups doing their own thing. So, I've gone to plenty of dog meetups over the years, uh, including my giant breed meetup in Brooklyn. but no no that didn't that didn't kick us off at all.
0: At what point did you know that bark had the potential to be a really big business?
1: <laughs> I know the exact moment, uh, so I didn't leave my job for about six months after the company started after we started shipping boxes and Getting into it. We so were, when
0: was that? When was the beginning?
1: The first box was shipped in December of two thousand eleven. Okay. There were forty nine shipped that month. We packed them by hand in our little conference room. Um, How and much it, did you charge? You remember? Twenty five dollars a month. Okay. I remember because I was the first customer, and I'm still a customer, and that's <laughs> what I'm charged every month. Uh, but it wasn't until that April. So my my dad is a luddite. Um, To give you an example of that, that was in, like I said, 2012. December of 2011, he made his first purchase on Amazon, Hmm. which was a book because I was standing over his shoulder walking him through it. He made this purchase in April of 2012, but he didn't know I was doing it. Hmm. He stumbled across this in social media. Oh, he
0: didn't know that it was your company? No.
1: No. Oh. No idea. As far as he knew, I was a venture capitalist.
0: You hadn't told him?
1: No. No, because he'll tell me all the reasons it won't work. <laughs> so, uh, so no, never brought it up. And I thought somebody was pranking me first and said, like, hey, my dad showed up as a new subscriber yesterday. So you're at
0: the point where you're still watching every new subscriber. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. You dig in on everyone of like, OK, how'd they find out? Where do they live? Who is this p- person? Are they a friend? And I thought somebody was playing a prank on me. And it was genuine. He stumbled across this and thought it was cool and bought it. And right there was the moment I said, this is, there's something going on here. This is Mm. crazy that second purchase ever online. First (laughs) one, Amazon, fine. Second one, this. So that was was the moment for me. How many customers did you have six months in? At that point, we were shipping maybe 500 boxes a month.
0: Okay, That's a lot. I mean, just for a couple of people to ship out, maybe, if if you got other jobs. So how are you doing? Yeah.
1: Well, so I had another job. Um, My co-founder, Henrik, had another job. And we, (laughs) so he and I got started a little bit with the idea and um, started to go around, tell people about it. They would say, that's great, let me know when it's live. We started to plug a square into our phone and say, it's live, swipe your card. (laughs) And we piled up 50 people that way. Mm -hmm. And then we had this moment of saying, oh, no, they expect us to send something to them. What do we do? <laughs> uh, and so we found Carly. And we said, we've got this concept. Um, here, you take it, and you figure out what to do. We have jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, as she does, as she has for the last six years, she took something that was sort of amorphous and moved it forward in a, in a great way. Tell so.
0: me about Carly. How did you find Carly? <laughs> what had Carly done before?
1: Uh, CARLY CAME Um, from a friend, just a friend recommendation. We said, we need somebody who's dog-obsessed. And it came from a friend of mine who said, I know someone, she's amazing, she's a great operator. She has three dogs. um, you got to meet her. And Carly, at the time, was the 13th employee ever at Uber Mm. and starting the New York City Uber operation. So I was running around. Activating taxi bases and working with drivers and yeah. doing all that. And she just said, I don't want to be a taxi dispatcher. I want to do something else. And we brought her in. Wow. Yeah, so,
0: yeah that, that's quite a, a couple of risks she took <laughs> yeah. working for Uber in the first place and then leaving Uber yeah. for this. And, and I
1: think last I heard, she's still the only one in the first 13 whoever, well, I guess Travis left now, but still on the board and all that. But mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, so what did she do? For us? Yeah, everything. She came <laughs> everything, uh, really everything. She started to find the products, she found the, the shipping methods. Like find
0: them where? What, what does that involve? Are you like, <laughs> yeah, New York's got a little bit of everything, but are you, it was, where are you sourcing this stuff? Because you gotta get it here, I guess, to ship it out.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of online research, and then hopping on a plane and going to shows, so, pet product shows, walking around, meeting people, telling them the crazy idea of what we're doing and why they should work with us and sell us 50 units of something. Uh, and she's great like that; she can um, really connect with people quickly.
0: 50 units, as opposed to 500.
1: Uh, initially, 50. Yep. Right. Yeah, and she kept at it. So.
0: And for- the, the risk that they were t- they're used to selling to you know, PetSmart or something. We're, we're- People are taking yeah, hundreds or, or thousands of units, and you're getting started, so you want fewer. You're trying to manage your inventory.
1: Yeah, and most of the the um, suppliers that we were working with in the early days, well, and mostly throughout, wouldn't work with PetSmart or Petco, not huh. not because they wouldn't. But PetSmart, Petco, bigger chains had their, their group of, li- a very limited group of suppliers they worked with. That's it. And what we discovered was an industry of tens of thousands of independent people trying to create products and get them out in the world somehow, get them in front of people. So selling more like 500, 1,000 units to distributors who would then get them on local pet store shelves and things like that.
0: So you're telling me there's a dog boutique underground. (laughs)
1: There is. There is. And there's a lot of talent in it.
0: Uh, where do you go to find the the masterminds of the of the dog boutique underground? And is there a <laughs> geographical center for this?
1: I don't think there's a geographical center okay. where you go. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere worldwide. <laughs> uh, you go to Orlando in March. You go to Vegas in July. That's a great time to hold a conference in <laughs> Vegas. Wow. Uh, and then Germany and China also have pretty big shows. And they're massive. They're they're just massive shows with people showing what they're creating for dogs.
0: How are the boutique products
1: different from what you find at a Pet or a Petco? Uh, a lot more personality, uh, a lot more risk taking, pushing the, the envelope. I think what you see in in the bigger chains are safer, if you will. Um, so you see like brands like Kong, which is a, a pretty sturdy toy, and in, it, uh, this is, I don't mean it in a negative way against them, but it's not really pushing the envelope in terms of it, that toy isn't going to offend anyone. <laughs> um, we created a, a Donald Trump toy, the uh-huh. dog that could offend large groups of people. Right, so. yeah.
0: About 30-something percent.
1: Of, <laughs> right, when, <yeah>. well, we're, <laughs> Depending we're,
0: on what the approval rating is doing, I guess. Yeah. Well,
1: we're neutral on it, you know. You, <laughs> you can either have the toy because you're a big supporter, or you can have it so your dog can destroy it. And so it's
0: not part of the destroyer line. No, um, no. Tell me about, the. maybe I'm saying <laughs> the name of it, wrong. the destroyer line that you got. It's basically mm-hmm. chew toys for dogs, right, that are meant to be literally ripped apart and yes. the stuffing come out.
1: Yes, yes. So the dog, uh, this is a hard one f- uh, for people to, to really connect to, but the dog is our customer. So when we're thinking about building products and product lines, we're skipping over the person with the credit card and saying, we've got to make that dog happy. Um, in the same way, I think Disney is built for children, it says, yeah, the parents have the credit card, but that's the smile we want. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we celebrate that dogs love to destroy something. They like to get a hold of the, the, something and make it squeak and pull it apart and rip it and have the stuffing all over. That's fun for them. So we created a whole line, the uh, Destroyers Club line, for them to, uh, to do that. How do you focus group a dog, though?
0: I mean, with kids, you know, there's, there's kids shows, you put sure. on a commercial, mom, dad, I want that thing. Dogs, I mean, some dogs do watch TV and you can tell some of the things they like, but they have trouble communicating yep. sometimes. Yep. So how do you serve the dog customer? There's one now.
1: <laughs> part of it is um, through our own research, through knowing our own dogs and knowing what they like and just paying attention to that. So there's, there's a big part of empathy in that. Then there's more of a science side of this where we've sent out now over 60 million products over the course of six years. And when we do, we send out surveys. We get lots of feedback. Hmm. Um, and then we break that down. So we break it down into um, different squeakers that we use in different toys. We, how
0: do you send out surveys?
1: Uh, just email.
0: Just email? Yep. OK.
1: Yep. And we get a pretty solid response rate to those. and. Uh, We break it down, so we'll say one to five, did your dog like this toy? But inside of that is they loved it, and it had this squeaker, and that squeaker scored really high across multiple toys. So that's a popular one with this type of dog or this grouping of dogs. Hmm. So it's really about analyzing the data, listening to people. Um, Some people say, my dog destroyed this in five minutes, and that was too fast. Not enough value there. Others say, My dog destroyed it, and it's the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> so it's aligning to the individual, too. Now, when
0: you say type of dog, mm-hmm. are you talking like breed of dog have different uh, toy preferences? Or are you talking like personality type of dog that kind of goes across? You? I don't. Yep, both. Okay. Both, yeah. Uh... So give me, give me some fantastic fact that you figured out, maybe about a breed of dog and a particular, I don't know, toy or treat
1: a fantastic fact. I don't know that I have one of those for well, you.
0: I was looking on the rankings and there's a, an animal toy that's popular. I forget if it's a, like a possum. mammoth or a, a possum. Yeah. Okay, I didn't see the possum, but okay. I imagine that would be fun. Oh, there's the
1: sloth too. The sloth.
0: Yeah. I think I saw the sloth.
1: Is there, a, <laughs> is
0: there a personality type of dog that loves the possum or the sloth for a particular reason? Well, to-
1: there's certainly... Those two in particular are for a larger dog. Mm. Um, they're a larger toys, so it's bigger than a chihuahua for the most part. Mm. So you're matching. Do this- chihuahuas
0: know that though? Because I've seen a few that think <laughs> I they're know. really
1: big. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure we would try that. Um.
0: This is Fort Knox, and you're listening to my conversation with Bark co founder and CEO Matt Meeker. Tell me about you. Yeah. What was your first? Entrepreneurial effort, or even if it wasn't completely entrepreneurial effort at creating something, even as a kid.
1: Even as a kid, um, so as a kid, I played. I played a lot of sports, and they were more individual-type sports. So, and I I played a lot of racquetball. I played nationally, um, a lot of national tournaments, and then played a little bit of professional, which. Isn't, isn't that big of a deal? You know, if you win a professional tournament um, in those days, you win $500. It's not but that big of a deal. But still, professional
0: racket, mm-hmm. but there's like an association and yep. like yep. a circuit.
1: Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. So, kind of played at that level. Um, I To me, that's self starting and hardworking and grinding it out and getting better at your craft. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it, in terms of business or a company, uh, uh, I think the first moment I thought of it was uh, I grew up playing in a club that um, I'm from Iowa, so in the middle of Iowa. Uh, I grew up playing in a club and when I was 19 I talked to my dad about going back and buying the place where I grew up playing hmm. um, and running it and wanting to own a health club and develop it. Um, I came pretty close to it and then it didn't work out. So. Was
0: that? Kind of the prototypical situation where your dad said, I'm not sure that's a great idea. And No, no, no. That well, was, was one where it.
1: he was very supportive of it. And we went and took a look and just the facility had fallen apart. And it wasn't in need a lot of repair. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't the right opportunity. It wasn't the right moment. But uh, went through college. And then I think the first one was my first job here in New York. I joined a digital ad agency in 1997.
0: That's a good time to join a digital ad agency. Which one?
1: Uh, called iTraffic. OK. And we eventually sold to Omnicom in December of 99. And that was, boy, we represented Disney, Staples, Capital One, Discover Card. And within there, every like at that time, everything was innovative, entrepreneurial, something new every week. Uh, I created a group called, um, boy, Affiliate network services, so it was performance-based mm-hmm. marketing, which was just this mind-blowing concept at the time that it wasn't CPM-based. It was, it was you get paid on a revenue share or per-action basis, which was crazy. Right. Uh, Google
0: made a lot of money out of uh, <laughs> yeah. out of that down yeah. the line.
1: Uh, and I, I remember seeing the first go-to presentation <laughs> and saying, "You can pay per-click," and it 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 was just incredible. Uh,
0: so skill set-wise. Were you coding? Were you a business side person? What were you More business on? side, more product
1: management. Yeah. Uh, so really about how will people interact with the product you create, and then how do you create the, the business model that supports it? How did Meetup come about? Meetup came about um, following 9-11. Uh, my co-founder, Scott and I, we were, uh, so Scott started the agency I worked for, And then we kept in touch, and after that, we started to hang out a lot and talk about a lot of different ideas. Meetup was the one we kept coming back to because we were so affected by what was happening in the city that following that, people were really genuinely concerned about each other. They'd walk down the street, like we're sitting here on Canal Street, and people are walking by and you would look at someone and say, how are you doing? To a complete stranger, and they'd say, I'm good, how are you? it was authentic. Mm. It wasn't in passing. It was people you didn't know. And that went on for quite a while and we really felt it like if you can get this feeling across the world every day, if you can somehow um, systematically make that happen, there's power in that.
0: Now being from Iowa, you had probably seen this type of human interaction before. (laughs) But some of us who grew up around New York would Mm -hmm. find that I don't know, a breach of protocol, against yes. the rules. Yes. Did that strike you at the time that this was a moment where something fundamental was shifting maybe oh, yeah. about even urban life?
1: Oh yeah, I'd I'd been in New York for 3 years at that point and had adjusted. Um, <laughs> and so you it You had heard the rules? Yeah, it was a very stark contrast and uh, but really meaningful and powerful and you just for the two of us, we just couldn't ignore it. Why um,
0: were you the two who were coming up with this idea? I mean, I think you said that he had started the digital ad agency. Yeah. You were working for it. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people who I guess he might have been talking to it about that idea, but it, it was you mm-hmm. who he was talking to. What was it about the conversations you had had before or the interest that you had expressed that that became a duo?
1: I think the first part of it was um, we're, we're very different. In, in a very complimentary way. Hmm. And so, but also with a good healthy respect of, I know what I'm good at and what I'm really missing and that person has it. So you, you really wanna put those things together and when the respect is there, then, it, then you get excited about, I gotta work with him. Uh, and Scott has a lot of vision and a lot of um, just enthusiasm about that. So once you get the idea he gets you fired up about it. Um, so it was it was very easy for me. Um, I don't know what he saw in me. So I'm <laughs> glad he saw it. Because it was a great experience and a lot of learning. But I don't know what he saw.
0: <laughs> at any point or at what point did was this a business meetup mm-hmm. versus a, a public utility?
1: It was a business from day one. Ah. Uh, so we had both. Um, In the years following the agency, there was about a year and a half, two year gap. And we had both tried to start things. We had, had, I think, our first taste of venture capital. Like what? What what did you try to start? um, I I was working on a, um, what's not too dissimilar to the iPhone, but a a different type of of messaging device. Hmm. So we had, in the form factor of a credit card thickness and everything, had made it so you can send and receive text messages through that card on an LCD window that's built into the card and it has transactional ability. Uh, Very different product in 2000. Um, So we were trying to bring text messaging to the masses in a really unique form factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And had some experience with venture capital along the way that just said, you know, maybe a company that's bootstrapped is in a better position to be successful than one that goes out and raises a whole bunch of money and then probably brings in different types of people to start it who aren't geared for starting so much as operating in a bigger business. Mm. Um, And so we went into it saying, we don't want to raise money. We want to build a sustainable business. We want to serve our customers Uh, and had a very solid business plan how we could do that it didn't work out of course <laughs> um, so we, we, the business that it is today is miles away from where it started uh, we thought we were brilliant with our initial idea but what was it supposed to be? it was supposed to be uh, essentially sending people into businesses and then those businesses paying for more and more groups and traffic to come in mm. uh, so and our, our One of our first attempts at this was we were going to national chains. So we were directing where meetups were going in the early days. Mm -hmm. and I don't remember the type of group, but we sent sent one rather large group into Barnes and Noble in Union Square. And we were so proud of ourselves. Like 80 people are gonna descend on Barnes and Noble 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. They've never seen traffic like this. (laughs) And our plan was to call headquarters the next day and say, you saw that last night? That was us. And we can do it more. <laughs> All you have to do is pay us. And we did. We called the next day, and and they said, that was you? Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea Nobody of, bought a book. <laughs> uh, and they weren't equipped for it. Mm-hmm. And woof. Uh, so we learned real world is a little bit harder.
0: Yeah, maybe Applebee's would have been a better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. maybe. <laughs> so Meetup sold to WeWork. Yes. Um, how did that fit into the outcomes that
1: you expected? Entirely unexpected. Uh, I think a great outcome overall and a great, um, just a great pairing, right? Uh, a lot of shared vision from what I understand. so fantastic outcome, not, uh, WeWork didn't exist when we started. So (laughs) not at all the outcome we ever expect or I ever expected. Uh, back to Bark. Yeah.
0: You guys are making a pretty good amount of money revenue wise. Mm -hmm. What are you expecting? A quarter billion dollars in 2018? Yes. What size customer base does that translate into?
1: Uh, Well, Bark is made up of a handful of different businesses. So there's a subscription box business, which Mm -hmm. today is about 600,000 subscribers, monthly recipients of the box. Wow, okay. We have our Bark Shop business. They're all monthly? Because you don't have to be monthly to to subscribe. Can you go every other month? Uh, You can, but it takes a call to customer support and some some, uh, begging and pleading to (laughs) to make that happen. So uh, we have our Bark Shop business and then Target. So in Target last year, well over a million transactions of our products. And that was just in the last four months of the year. we, we shipped over 5.4 million bark boxes, and we had about 200,000 orders on our bark shop.
0: You said our products, I wanted to get to that, because you yeah. talked about this crazy dog people boutique product underground, where people around the world <laughs> are making extra special goods for dogs. Yeah. But you have bark branded yeah. products also. Is that labeling things that other people have made, or is it stuff that you guys have made yourselves?
1: Now it's all stuff we've made ourselves. Huh. Yep. Yeah. So we made that turn gradually and again it was following the customer and the data. So we had that direct connection with them and still do where first we were buying things off the shelf from our, from those suppliers, then they were starting to make things for us and say, "How about this toy for the bark box? We made it just for you. It won't go anywhere else." And that turned into or hearing a lot of this stuff from customers, so can you take that and do these couple things with it? And then us hiring really talented toy designers here, and who are using all that information from customers, sketching it out, creating toys, and then handing it to those partners and saying, just make this.
0: And then they and sell it back to you with a markup.
1: Yep. <laughs> and now we said, don't worry, we'll just make it.
0: Right. Yeah. Because you were doing R&D for them and then paying not only for the R&D, but then paying yeah. the margin for them to make it. And after a while, it was like, oh, wait a minute.
1: Yeah. But the the universe is still filled with a lot of talented designers, if that's of toys, of treats, of other products. And we have to first keep real sharp. So we're, we're ahead of the curve and serving our customers better. But we also have to be humble enough to say, somebody else is creating good stuff and we should put that in front of our customer too, hmm. even if it costs more.
0: Now, why Target? Because you talked about PetSmart and Petco as being yeah. the sorts of places that weren't going to take a risk on the types of products
1: that the Bark
0: customer wants. Mm-hmm. So why is Target different?
1: Uh, they, they approached us and mm-hmm. they said, first, we're making a big push into the pet aisle. And um, making that a real focus of our of our future. And second, we need to work with brands who have a direct customer relationship and know how to speak to this customer. So uh, we had we actually had initial discussions with them a year before we did it and we didn't feel we were prepared to serve them well. so we pulled back, came back to it. And we found a real openness and a real partnership spirit from them of Wanting to push that envelope and try things and, uh, and they've been a very good partner. So you've been pretty open about the fact that you're going to
0: be ready to go public as mm-hmm. a company in the middle of
1: 2018.
0: Yep. Um, not that you'll do it, but you'll be ready. <laughs> right. Uh, you've also been open with the idea that maybe an IPO won't happen. Maybe you'll find a partner or an acquirer who might come along. Yep. That's sort of different for a tech Company or a retail company with a, a technology background to be that
1: explicit about possible outcomes. Why? Well, those are the outcomes. Yeah, um. <laughs>
0: but usually in Silicon Valley, they sort of like, oh no, we're going to go all the way and change the world for dogs and be the biggest.
1: Well, we're, that's that's the aim. That that's the aim is to build first of all a really solid business that. Does, this isn't about five, six, seven years. This is about, um, you know, the brands we talk about. You're talking
0: dog years or
1: human? Ears? <laughs> Sorry. Either one. Too. Either one. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, the the companies that we really admire are like the Disneys, um, where that's an eighty year old company and it started with one product and it started with a mouse and. I I often tell the team as we're thinking about new businesses or new ways we can serve the customer, just remember from day one of Disney to Disneyland opening, was 32 years. We don't have to do it all in these first five years and position ourselves for an outcome. It's about building a real solid, robust business. Um, Going public allows us to do that and continue to build and just create more and more value and serve more and more customers. We've barely started. We've, we serve right now roughly a million customers out of a 60 million household um, universe in the US. We have 59 million more to go, <laughs> a lot more to go. Uh, and then there's the whole world. So uh, IPO isn't uh, an outcome. I guess it's an event. But then we go on and we keep running the business. And the same with an acquisition. This isn't about a cash out. Um, there's certainly that component of it for us and our investors, but then we keep going. So I'd want an acquirer to be similar to tie it back to WeWork and Meetup, something that elevates us and we're, we're sharing our values and where we want to go together.
0: Hmm. Finally, I want to talk about social media. It seems in a way that that's a demand generator for you guys because yeah. crazy dog people like taking pictures of their crazy dogs. Yeah. Um, to what extent have you been able to link those two things together—the idea that uh, social drives signups? ups Do you have any kind of celebrity dogs that have really generated uh, subscribers
1: for you? Sure, and there's we we publish a lot of content in social, and some of that is working with celebrity dogs and influencer dogs, <laughs> um, of which there are many. Um, we. C- we created something called a Bark Pack a while ago. Let me ask you about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> What's the difference between an influencer dog and a dog? Like, is it, is it just having a, a dog parent, I think I'm being correct, correct in dog parlance That's there, right. who's a good photographer, or who has a sense of humor? Is there something inherently about
1: the dog? I, I wonder. Sometimes it's the dog. Um, there's, a, there's a rather famous influencer dog called Tuna. Tuna melts my heart. I can't tell you how many millions of followers Tuna has now, but it's a big deal. And some of that is uh, Tuna has a very unique overbite and a look that just makes people smile. Mm. So there's some of that. Tuna has both components of this. I think the other side of it is uh, I'd call it the stage mom side. Mm. So you have to have somebody who's committed to posting those photos and taking them and, and doing all the things that build an audience and engagement around social. Tuna's got both. Tuna's a manager. Um,
0: so... Tuna's got all the tools. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how do the tunas of the world
1: drive bark business? Um, just by mentioning us or being close to us or um, putting more people into our universe. So is this more like fun. a Nike
0: Le- LeBron sort of thing where you will pursue <laughs> celebrity so. dogs and be like, okay, let's work something out here. Is there a particular treat that you like or a particular toy? we'll We'll comp that for you. We'll name it after you. I don't know.
1: Uh, we haven't done that. That's, that's interesting. I've never thought of the <laughs> Nike LeBron thing either. Uh, Air tuna. But, but a little bit of that. And in our earlier days of building our social following, there was a lot of support in that, uh, I'll call it a, a community, of people who are building their influence and their dog's reach. And us building ours, and so we're all sharing each other's stuff, and that's just exposing our various audiences to everyone else's. So you saw rapid growth in that.
0: New York hasn't had a lot of um, big, successful IPO exits in the tech era. Mm -hmm. Does that matter to you? Does it matter how? That it hasn't happened? That it hasn't happened. (laughs) is it something that, would it make it sweet if you were to go that route as, as opposed to uh, the M&A route? Be, because New York just, you know, Tumblr had a lot of potential, sure. but sold to Yahoo. There have been a number of things like that.
1: Yeah. I, no, I don't think it matters to me at all. <laughs> it's, it's about building the best company and, and it following the right course for, for what's right for it. So if that's an IPO, and that's, I think either outcome has a positive effect on the overall New York City tech ecosystem. Uh, overall, we need, we don't need billion dollar outcomes. We need tens and hundred billion dollar outcomes. We're still missing our, our Twitter, our Facebook, our Google, our YouTube. Our you know we're we're missing that one. Um, so uh, I think we're a few years off from that and it's not uh, zero to three years and then we're public. Very few of them are, but uh, that's the one we're missing. So, no, I don't, I don't have a point to prove. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh,
0: I guess there's more to success than proving a point. Hey, I appreciate you sitting down, this has been great. Yeah, thank you. Matt told me that Bark is pondering an international strategy, but the logistics are tough. General Mills announced that deal to buy Blue Buffalo Three days after this interview, fair to say, that's exciting news for Bark. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This has been the Fort Knox Podcast Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F O R T T K N O X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, on YouTube, you'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. And this past week, I talked the pet economy with Aaron Easterly, CEO of Rover.com, Bill McFadden, Bold Oaks kennel owner and expert dog handler who just won Best in Show at the 2018 Westminster Kennel Club with a Bichon Frise named Flynn. I guess Flynn actually won at Westminster. And Nicholas Dodman, doctor of veterinary medicine and animal behaviorist, the author of books including Pets on the Couch, Neurotic Dogs, Compulsive Cats, Anxious Birds, and the new science of animal psychiatry. I kid you not. This is serious stuff. Just go to YouTube, search for Fort Knox, go to Facebook, search for John Fort, and you'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on any of those platforms. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.